In the influential and critically acclaimed Netflix original series called Black Mirror, we see that there is a near distant future, a near future rather, uh, in which the world is just engulfed in technology. You see, they're speaking of a near future in which we see what we see already today playing out to its fullest and all of the things that captures society playing out to its nth degree. And we see this, uh, this near future in all of the difficulties that come when humanity and all of its frailty mixes with an overwrought and overrunning technology. And so we're going to show you a video clip here in just a few, uh, just a few moments in which we see the creator of the series giving a synopsis of an episode called Nosedive, in which the main character, her name is Lacey, is uh, just fixated on this idea of raising her personal rating. Can you imagine if uh, a person just in their daily life, if you could be rated by your coworkers in the same way that you might be able to rate uh, a seller on Amazon, a vendor on Amazon when you buy something from them, either a positive rating or a negative rating. Maybe it's a, a restaurant that you would frequent and you give them a positive rating or a negative rating on Yelp or something like that, or it's a website or a business. Imagine if you could do that with an individual. We see that's the gist of this clip that we're going to take a look at today. Take a look here. Nosedive. Nosedive is a satire on acceptance and the image of ourselves we like to portray and project to others. It stars Bryce Dallas Howard, who's fantastic, and she's playing a character called Lacey, who lives her life trying to please everyone. Lacey is lost. She's lost herself in this world where she thinks that her value is equivalent to her points. Two starts. Two stars? Wasn't a meaningful encounter. Everyone is a little bit heightened and false because everyone's terrified of being marked down because the consequences of that are unpleasant. So it's basically the world we live in. (laughs) The irony of the title of that series is Black Mirror because in many ways, and we see if you read some of the synopsis of some of the episodes, it does shine a mirror on some of the darkest uh, tendencies of mankind, and we see those things played out in technology. And so today, in the midst of our Worldview Sermon Series, we're going to look at technology. Let's look at a couple of other quotes here, in fact, from a couple of other influential uh, members of the tech society. And in fact, as we walk through these uh, quotes, we're going to have quite a bit of information, quite a bit of quotes today. There was just no other way that I thought we could do this and do justice to this than give quite a few quotes and quite a bit of information. Now, we can't possibly do all that on the screen like we normally do when we put pertinent information on the screen for you to write down. I think there's great irony, in fact, in that. And we're going to say that, you know, it's not all on the screen like it normally is. You get it. It's almost like a joke we're all in on. But uh, in the blog that we, are, we have uh, started on our website, also irony, we are going to uh, put some of the full notes there. And of course, you can email me, also irony, uh, and request some of those notes and uh, some of the source material as well. But Sean Parker, one quote from Sean Parker, who was the first president of Facebook. We know Facebook was on the leading edge along with the defunct MySpace uh, in, in social media. And of course, now we see that blossoming into things like Twitter 
and, uh, and, and Instagram and Snapchat and InstaFace, and no, that one's fake, but uh, all those things we like to say. But uh, we see Sean Parker here, he's the first president of Facebook, said this, that much of the social engineering and much of the, the, the cues from how to get people um, focused upon their product and much of the marketing, he says it taps into to some of the same places that the cigarette companies of old used to tap into. And he said they would exploit addiction pathways. And he said of his own industry, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. Listen to this. From, and I'm going to butcher his name, but I'm going to try my best. Chamath Palipaptia. He, was, he, he led Facebook at one point, Facebook's effort in global growth. And he said this as well. The short-term dopamine, those are those little shots of like adrenaline we get from when we entertain ourselves and whatever it may be, we get these little mental shots of dopamine. He says the short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops we've created are destroying how society works. And this was the man in charge of Facebook's efforts for global growth. But just like anything, we're going to see that technology is a tool. Much like money, when we see Scripture speak of the love of money as the root of all evil, he doesn't say, Scripture doesn't say that money is. Money itself is a tool. But if it becomes something we're obsessed with, it becomes an idol. In the same way, technology is a tool. But if we become obsessed with it, much like money, it then becomes an idol and we face all of the consequences of said idolatry. Now, here's also what's ironic about this as well, is that this whole sermon series is based upon what we see the biblical worldview on topics juxtaposed to society's worldview on similar topics. What's ironic about this one is that we see much of some leading thinkers of society coming right alongside with what we believe to be, what we see to be the biblical worldview on this issue. The only difference is, the big difference is, it's a crucial difference, is that they see the symptoms, but they don't quite know at times what the root of the problem is. The root of the problem, of course, is that we were created to give God glory, to, to, to glorify God forever, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as the first question of the old ancient catechism says, based on biblical truth. But oftentimes we're driven by what's called FOMO. Have you ever heard that term, FOMO? It's, a, it's an acronym, F-O-M-O, stands uh, fear of missing out, fear of missing out. And we've always had, and all of society has had forever, this sort of fear of missing out. You don't want to be left out of this. You don't want to be left out of this. And it, in a way, because of the uniqueness of certain technologies, it is heightened. And this doesn't just go for those that are of the younger generations. We, too, as adults, can have this sort of FOMO that is augmented and accentuated by the uniqueness of technology. Now, here's what we're going to talk about today. And here's what is unique, unique about the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview on this particular thing. The question is, what's at stake here? What's at stake for us in this issue? What's the main issue? The main issue is distractedness. I don't mean distractedness and this just sort of uh, uh, nebulous idea. I mean a distractedness that directly affects your effectiveness as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Your effectiveness as a Christian's at stake. You realize when you were saved, those of us in this room that today that are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we weren't just saved for our own sake. And then like, all right, good, it's all wrapped up, everything's done. 
Of course, we're to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, but we are also to be ambassadors. Those people that you work with, those people that you live with, those people that you know at school, we should have the same heart for those people that Jesus Christ had, a broken heart of those that were lost, and we have the answer to that hopelessness and that lostness. But when we're distracted, when we live in a constant state of distractedness, we lose our effectiveness as Christians. Folks, in fact, the lives of those around you are at stake. We are wasting, if we are wasting our life, we are wasting the opportunity for those hell-bound folks around us to hear the life-changing news of the gospel. Let's turn now to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in 15 and following to verse 17. You see, this is what's at issue. How are we walking in life? How are we living our life? How are we spending our time? And so it says here in verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. That's a big word I have in my translation. Many of your translations might say wisely or carefully. That's what it means. It means don't just kind of willy-nilly go through life, just, you know, who knows how you spend your time. He says, walk carefully. Walk carefully. Use your time wisely. And not in a sense that, hey, I can check five things off my list instead of one thing. He means walk in such a way that you are living with biblical wisdom, being a missionary, living according to God's perspective. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So again, as we see this, we we see our very first thing, very simply, very straightforwardly, walk carefully. Walk carefully. We see that in verse 15. That's what that word circumspectly means. It means to be continually focused, to walk carefully, not just sort of floating through life. Be continually focused. And we're not just talking about focused, again, in sort of a checklist sort of a way. Continually focused upon how would Jesus Christ deal with this situation? How would Jesus Christ live his life? How can I live with eternal purpose, not stirring up, storing up treasure on earth in which moth and rust destroy, but storing up treasure in heaven in which moth and rust do not destroy? Carefully. It means having our head on a spiritual swivel. I've used this illustration before. I played football, and one of the things I did in the two positions I played as a linebacker and a safety is that we were to have our head on a swivel, meaning we were always to be looking around for when things were coming here, things were coming there, where's it coming from, what's going to happen here, anticipating. In, in a similar, definitely not, definitely not the same situation, much more of a life and death, much more of an important case, we see uh, training of special forces. If you've ever read anything or seen any uh, specials on the training of special forces, when they go into a, a building, when they go and raid a particular place, they're told to have their head on a swivel, continually looking for where danger may be hiding. In the same way, we are to have our head on a spiritual swivel, not just avoiding, not just avoiding pitfalls in our world, but proactively looking for opportunities to use our time wisely as missionaries in this world. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools. We've talked about this before too. Fools in the Bible doesn't mean someone who's ignorant. It means someone who has deliberate indifference to the things of God. They know what to do, 
but they choose not to do it. That's what the fool is in the Bible. It's this sort of malicious simple-mindedness. Like, I am purposely not doing that. Deliberate indifference. It's living as though God doesn't exist. In fact, Psalms 14, verse 1, that says this, The fool has said in his heart, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And again, if we look at the whole witness of Scripture, that fool is not someone who's ignorant. That fool is not someone who's walking around with half a brain. This is a person that can look, Romans chapter 1 from a couple of weeks ago, can look at the signs of our world and say, there is something complex about this. This couldn't just happen, but time plus matter plus chance. There must be something to this. The fool says in his heart, I look at all that and say, there's still no God. Now I apply that to all issues of life, to live as though no God exists. Now here's the, here's the, the sober warning to us as believers. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, not on a regular basis because that is a long-term sign of not bearing fruit and it is a sign of a person not being redeemed. But even day-to-day, unfortunately, at times, we can live with practical atheism. Now you say, that sounds rather strong. Well, when we live making our own choices as if God has not spoken to these things, God has not spoken to the particular choice that I make, or God has nothing to say about it, or I know he does and I'm not going to do it anyway, we are living as though God does not exist. So see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The other side of this, the proactive, positive side, Matthew 10, 16 says this, Behold, I send you out into the world as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He's telling us in the midst of this world that is broken and dark and needs hope, they're groping and looking for hope and they can't find it. He says that we are to live in such a way that we are shrewdly applying God's truth. We're shrewdly applying God's truth. And and as we do, we have this sort of accurate perception of the world. We see it through the lenses of truth. You remember how we talked about that? One of our authors that we quoted last week said, that worldview is like a set of glasses that we look through and we view the world. Do we have the right prescription? Do we have the biblical prescription? So we have an accurate assessment of the world plus a burden for that world. That, that is key. It's easy for us to just say, much like the Pharisees of old, that I'm going to kind of point a finger at the world and see everything that's wrong with the world, and I'm going to shout from afar, look at everything that's wrong with the world. Folks, lost people are going to act lost. Lost people are going to act lost. They haven't been saved. They haven't been changed. They haven't been born again. So we are to accurately assess the world, plus we are to have a burden, the same type of burden that Jesus Christ did. Not shouting from afar like the Pharisees, but going and digging into life, praying for them, looking for opportunities, how we can share the gospel and how we can speak truth into their life. Folks, and as we live wise, we're just going to have to realize that we are not always going to fit in. You know, Jaquel Crow, she's a great young author, a millennial author, a Christian author. And she has some great statements. One of, the, one of the authors that I'm going to quote throughout the midst of this sermon. And listen to what she says here. Listen how accurately she describes the whole of Christian history. She says, God's people have never fit in. They've always been the outliers and the radicals, the locust-eating wilderness wanderers. That doesn't mean that we're purposely supposed to walk into culture and try to be as weird as we can possibly be. 
and do our best to, to not speak into culture. But what it means is if we are going to speak truth, we have to speak the truth in love and realize that we're not going to be cool enough to just kind of slip ourselves in seamlessly to society. And in fact, we're, we don't need to be, nor should we. They need to see that there's something different. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. Living differently, but not living sourly. Living with that joy that is innately ours. And as we do, as she says, as she continues in this article, God's people have always called to be light in the darkness, shining in the darkness, Matthew chapter 5. We're called to be extraordinary, extraordinary. We're not just called to just sort of fit in and go with the flow, but we're called to live humanity for all that it's meant to be the way God intended it. And as we do, walk carefully, we're also called to buy back our time. Buy back our time, redeeming the time. That's what that word means, redeeming, buying it back, buying back our time. Why? Because life is but a vapor, the Bible says. We live a vaporous life. Douglas Freeman, the author, says this, time alone is irreplaceable. Time alone is irreplaceable. And so we are to buy back and redeem our time. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me read this. You can flip there if you want. If not, just follow along as I read. It says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, reference this quite often. What a powerful picture. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, it might say, if you're reading along in your translations, capital D, that speaks to the second coming of Christ, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And, and, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone was... Uh, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, it will, he will receive a reward, that imperishable crown of righteousness. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. Now, here's the thing. It's speaking of believers here. It says right there at the end, you'll be saved, but by the skin of your teeth. Now, we know we're fully saved in Christ, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is making a point here. He's like, you are saved, your salvation is secure in Christ, but it still matters how you live your life. We are saved, as it says in Scripture, for good works. We're not saved because of good works, but we're saved to to live our life in such a way that we are serving God and his purpose and his mission of seeing the world come to faith in Christ. Redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Millions, billions of people are caught in the meat grinder of the world. And even the world can see it. Even society can see it. As I said before in the opening of this sermon, this is an interesting one because there is a dovetailing we see of culture in the biblical worldview, at least in that they can identify the symptoms and the difficulties of, of this particular issue. That gentleman that you saw on the screen there, Charlie Brooker, who is the creator of that, of that television series, Black Mirror, says this, According, or the story says, according to Brooker, technology is not the enemy. We know it's a tool. Technically, that's correct. It is a tool. Brooker noted that people just can't relate to a big piece of technology. Now, this is where he's getting at. He says, why is his series different? Instead of just having some sort of big, nebulous idea of a supercomputer, some sort of a, a digital wizard behind the curtain, why does he not do that? Why does he relate it to people as we saw here? What they can relate to, what people can relate to, is to a human who becomes obsessed and consumed with technology. 
And I will add into my own commentary on anything else for that matter. That's what the Bible speaks to, Ezekiel chapter 14, as an idol of the heart. But he tells us this. Therefore, based upon all that, do not be unwise. But how are we to be wise? The implication is don't be unwise, so we're therefore to be wise. Well, how are we to be wise? We must understand what the will of the Lord is. How are we to make biblically informed decisions in all of life? Well, we're to know the word. We're to know the word because this is how we know his will. The more we immerse ourselves in the word of God, the more not only we, we specifically can call to mind certain passages where they say this particular thing, certain scripture that we have memorized that say this particular thing, but also we got to get an understanding as we live life to say that this particular choice here, choice A, does not fit the bill biblically. But choice B, how I can handle this situation, this does fit the bill of how Christ would act. We have to know the authentic article so that we know how to be well-informed for the will of the Lord. Now, the remainder of this sermon, in fact, will be an expansion of this last point here. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is going to be an expanding as we sort of do a deep dive through the, into these particular things, looking at application. How do we apply that? How do we apply the particular uh, admonition there to not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We're going to apply that. So as we, as we sort of go into the brass tacks here of application, one of the very first questions we have to ask ourselves is what are we hoping this idol will give us? Now we're talking specifically about technology today, but as I ended a statement just a few moments ago, this applies to anything that has an overwrought uh, portion of our attention. What are we hoping the idol will give us? Well, the first thing is entertainment, just very simply entertainment. We're hoping to be entertained. You know, one of the worst things in our society today is to be bored, right? We think it is. We think it is. I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek. It's amazing how even a New York Times article recently said that boredom is not a bad thing. In fact, it is a good thing and extremely important for human cognitive development because when we're bored, we figure things out. We figure out how to be creative, and we figure out how to entertain ourselves. Even the New York Times figured this out and, and, and could identify this particular thing. Well, I think one of the best, most sort of prophetic, quote-unquote prophetic voices on this matter was Neil Postman in his book, Entertaining Ourselves to Death. A long quote here, and I want you to listen very carefully. And again, we'll give you a reference and resource to this. Don't feel like you try to try to write it down. There's no way that you can. Contact me. We'll have it up online. You can get the reference to this particular thing. But listen to this. He gives the difference between two great, um, two great works of uh, two great uh, uh, works of writing that spoke to a distant future and a dystopian future. One of those we know very well, 1984. Most of us probably had to read that in, in school at some point, which it spoke of a big brother dystopian future. Uh, there was this oppression by the quote-unquote big brother. And he also speaks of another one, less known, but Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Now follow along with me. Here you go. We are keeping our eye, he says, we were keeping our eye on 1984, the book and the year. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. 
But what we'd forgotten was that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we'll be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were that there would be those that would ban books. What Huxley feared is there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that, they, that those who would deprive us, there would be those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared that there would be those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become captive to culture, or we'd become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy, meaning just meaningless stuff. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World, revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who were ever on alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we would fear would ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. What amazing words there. Well, that speaks to our culture we live in today. So entertainment. Entertainment. What are we hoping the idol will give? Entertainment. And then also... The second and third thing, we're going to first look at escape and then distractions almost closely related to it as well. Escape. Escape. Brooker, the same gentleman again, the creator of the series Black Mirror, he says about, quote unquote, living in virtual reality. There is something cold and horrifying about the black mirror of a screen. You see, that's where he got the title of the series from. Think about when you are surfing. We all do it, right? When we're looking at our social media we're looking at our social media account, and we're something on, and then we close our phone, and what do we get? That, right? And then what do we do? We see ourselves. We see ourselves in the black mirror. That's where he got the title of the series from. He says there's something cold and horrifying about the black mirror of a screen because we hope to find escape in it, not only entertainment, but escape, escaping the difficulty of our life, escaping the issue here, escaping the issue there. Philippians 4, 6, what does it say about escaping? It doesn't say escape. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He doesn't say escape the issues of life. He says, get on your knees and pray. Spend time with him. Link to above, the link to escape, we also see distraction. Proverbs 25, 28, wherever, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city with a broken down wall, broken down without walls. John Bloom, another great 
an influential Christian writer on this particular subject says this, our fundamental and most dangerous problem in distraction is being distracted from God. Here's where we bring the focus back to biblical worldview. Distraction as a whole is not a good thing, but the most important thing, the most difficult thing, the, the worst part of distraction is that we're distracted from God. Our tendency to shift our attention from the greatest object in existence to countless lesser ones. The Bible calls this, he says, idolatry. And he set the nail on the head. When we shift our attention and our focus from the greatest possible object to countless lesser ones, when we shift it from God to countless lesser distractions, that's exactly what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. So what are the consequences? This is what we're hoping to receive from the idol, but then we secondly see what are the consequences of this? And as we mentioned several times before, even the secular world, even the world without a biblical worldview can see the consequences. They're just trying to figure out what to do and why is, what's, the, what's, the, what's the issue here? What, first of all, we see the, con- the, the consequence of concentration itself. Now, in this section, we're going to dive deep into some technical stuff, but I think it's important for us to do that. So what are the consequences? First of all, we see con- concentration. Uh, Paige Guttaker, also another influential millennial writer, and I, I reference the fact that she is a millennial writer because she is native, native to this culture, native to this technology culture, but this affects all of us, affects all of us of any age. Solitude, silence, and meditation, she says uh, on Scripture, solitude, silence, and meditation on Scripture have been among the Christian spiritual disciplines for nearly two millennia, but in our own time, they face a unique threat. In a sentence, it is this disorganization of our own minds fostered by the most powerful attention-scattering tool ever encountered by mankind, the Internet. And, of course, we know by proxy, social media and all the like. Nicholas Carr, another um, great writer. This is a secular writer, in fact. He's, he was a Pulitzer uh, finalist for his book that he wrote called The, Shadow, the Shallows talking about us as shallow people. So again, Nicholas Carr, Pulitzer finalist for the book, The Shallows. He says, the medium itself discourages linear complex thought, encouraging us instead to multitask our way through the maze of hyperlinks and simultaneously open windows. What it does is it feigns productivity by giving us a chemical high via increased dopamine in the brain, which lead to memory errors, increased processing time, and heightened impulsiveness. In other words, pop-ups, instant messages, movement, and lighting of text, even things like low battery warnings make internet-enabled devices inherently distracting. And again, to sort of wrap up this section of concentration, Paige Guttaker again That great millennial writer says, we become used to haphazardly flitting from one thing to another, happily avoiding the heavy lifting of deep, sustained thought, all the while unaware that our brain's ability to think deeply is slowly being dismantled. I'll tell you personally, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or if it's because the last 10 years of my life have been with this in this sort of arena. But I know distinctly I cannot focus like I used to. Now, you might say that's, a, that's an overstatement. But I know distinctly earlier in my life I could sit down and I could mow through something. I could mow through research. I could mow through text. And I can't do it as much as I used to. And you might say that's an overstatement. But I feel I'm right. So what are the consequences? Again, concentration. 
closely related memory. Memory consolidation, long-term memories happen from what's called in, in, in neurocognitions called memory consolidation. Nicholas Carr, again, that we mentioned before in his book, the key to memory consolidation is attentiveness. And that's why certain things, even like taking handwritten notes in class as opposed to typing notes, he says does a far better job, again, of what those uh, technicians call encoding in the brain. And that's how we, our memory is affected. So concentration, memory, and then this one that hits even closer to the, the issue of worldview, empathy, empathy. You know, returning again, as we often did, I think the, the, that, that series on Netflix is so, such a great illustration. The, the episodes themselves are not always great, but the, the overall premise is such a great illustration of what we're talking about. One of the episodes uncovers what they say, this, this sort of theoretical, hypothetical uh, practice of the future in which they call blocking, blocking. So imagine most of us are on some form of social media, and you know if something comes up on your feed that's just you just just is not good. Most of the time, it, it has a very good uh, effect and a very good um, outproduct and outgrowth of being able to block something that's just bad content. It's just not uh, good for whatever reason. You can block it. He said, "Imagine if you could do that in real life. Imagine if you could do that in real life." The premise of a particular episode is that there's some sort of a, a mental implant that all humans have, and we have the ability to block someone. So take a look at this first picture here. Imagine you have someone like this that you just, you know, is just giving you a hard time, or you just don't like them. Now, this guy's angry here, but maybe it's just somebody that's just annoying you, or you just don't like their opinion or whatever. Imagine if you could do this. Take a look at the next picture here. Imagine if you just block them. You just walked around life, and you just block people out. And then think about the opposite effect of that, if for whatever reason a person uh, out of no fault of their own or at least it wasn't worth being blocked now goes around and when they walk around all they see is just people who have blocked them and so they can't see these particular people. And they think about how that would affect uh, empathy and think about how that affects uh, how we relate to others. Now here's something very interesting as well. A Michigan study, again a secular study, uh, uncovered a causal link between screen time and reduced ability to read others emotionally. This isn't that big of a leap. We can probably figure this out pretty easily. The, the increase in a screen time reduces the ability to read others in emotion, emotionally. And as the researchers concluded, implications are that the short-term effects of increased opportunities, this is positively, if you were, if you were to set that aside and, 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 and turn it proactively towards the positive, implications are that the short-term effects of increased opportunities for social interaction combined with time away from screen-based media and digital communication tools improves others' understandings of, understanding of nonverbal emotional cues. Nonverbal emotional cues. Now, when we think about this, this is sort of part one of application of that last point of, of, of understanding what the will of the Lord is. When we're looking at what, is, what do I think that idol is going to do for me and what are the consequences? You know, one of my own points of commentary on this that I think is sort of disturbing is the crazy thing is this. Many of us are kind of caught up in this, in this issue. Many of us are caught up in, in letting this sort of run out too far. And I think the crazy thing is, is that we almost sort of find comfort in the fact that we, at least we're all losing a little bit of our humanity together. Isn't that goofy? But I think that's almost if we could sort of think deeply and honestly with ourselves and think, why are we okay with this? 
I think it's because we find a little bit of comfort in the fact that we're all losing a little bit of our humanity together. And so if we're all doing it, we're all doing it. So the question is, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? First of all, realize the brevity of life. Realize the worldview side of this. Psalms 90 verse 12 says this, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You see, the gaining of the heart of wisdom starts with, when we look at that verse, it starts with numbering our days. It starts with, help, with looking and saying, we don't have an infinite number of days on this earth. Now, as we progress through life, we understand that more acutely. It's understandable. We understand that as we near uh, the end, as we begin to pull in that station of eternity, we, we begin to understand that more, but we have to realize that, that God says, teach us. And the writer here of Psalms says, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Also, not only to realize the brevity of life, but live seriously. I mentioned this before. Live seriously, not sourly. Not sourly. For the person that's just a rule follower and they've got their teeth gritted all the time and they're pointing their finger at the world and, and they're doing this, shaking, get off, they're kind of get off my lawn guy through all of life. Well, you know who that was in the Bible, in the, in the accounts of Christ and his life? Those are the Pharisees. Those are the Pharisees. Yes, we are to live. You know, we were saved. Again, we were saved unto good works, but we should do those good works for, out of gratitude for what God has done for us and a trust in God that doing it his way is what's going to bring us happiness and joy in life. And so we're not to live sourly. We're to live with joy that comes from following the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look straight ahead. So what are we to do? Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. It's touching back again to verse 15 of our focal verse, our focal passage today, to walk circumspectly, walk carefully, walk carefully, and we're, as we are to do, to live seriously, not sourly. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13, not on the screen, but follow along and listen. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. He speaks again to this particular thing, just like the application of it there in the context, that, this, that things are a tool. Anything that's even a tool can become an idol if it's, if it's blown out of perspective. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He says, I'm not going to become a slave to anything. So what are we to do? Sometimes we're just to have good old self-control under the power of God. We're not doing it in our own power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in our lives. But John Bloom, again, we referenced him before, says this, muscles don't grow stronger without pushing against resistance. Muscles don't grow stronger without pushing against resistance, whether it's lifting weights, whatever it may be, doing push-ups, sit-ups. Muscles don't grow stronger, don't grow stronger without pushing against resistance. Neither does self-control. We've got to push against resistance to grow in our self-control, of course, praying that God will give us what we need. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, familiar passage to us. Don't you know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Paul is saying again, live your life in such a way that you want to obtain that prize of glory and not just kind of float through life, living your life willy-nilly. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. He says, using his illustration, the Olympic runner, that crown will ultimately perish. But we, for an imperishable crown, 
living for God's glory and living for seeing people come to faith in Christ and grow in maturity. That is imperishable. That is a crown that will exist in glory. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, just sort of goes about life, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So you say, Pastor, okay, we have to live focused and we have to live uh, not, uh, we have to live not sourly. We have to live in such a way that we're focused, but not with sour uh, disposition. What else are we to do? Practical steps. Pastor, give me something practical. I'm going to give you this illustration as we end today. And again, don't try to follow along. Listen. Don't try to follow along and write it down. We will have these things posted for you, and you can contact me again. But Andy Crouch in his book, TechWise Family, TechWise Family, a biblical perspective again, gives these tech... 10 tech-wise commitments. Now, you may not do these exactly, but what it does, it unearths and illustrates for you what we're to do, not to just sort of willy-nilly allow ourselves to be controlled by technology or any other idol. So here's 10 tech-wise commitments that he takes. You can take some of these to heart. You can learn from these. You don't have to do them exactly. We develop wisdom and courage together as a family. Number one, we want to create more than we consume, he says. So we, will, so we fill the center of our home with things that reward skill and active engagement. We are designed for a rhythm of work and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we turn off our devices, for, we turn off our devices and worship, feast, play, and rest together. So you might take their, their guidance on that. You might not do it exactly, but maybe the spirit of what they do. We wake up before our devices do, and we go to bed before they do. So they don't immediately wake up and put something in their hand, and they turn it off before they go to bed. We aim for no screens before double digits at school and at home, meaning before at 10 o'clock and whatever. You know, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. But you may not do it exactly, but uh, you can take the advice there and something to that effect. We use screens for a purpose, and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. He says, car time is conversation time, number seven. Number eight, spouses have one another's passwords, and parents have total access to their children's devices. Number nine, we learn to sing together rather than letting recorded and amplified music take over our lives in worship. I think my family, of course, would balk at that if I'm included in the scene. They'd say, absolutely no way. Uh, number 10, we show up in person for the big events of life. We learn how to be human by being fully present at our moments of greatest vulnerability. Now, again, this is what they do. These are some good guidance. You don't have to follow these exactly. But again, what it means, what I think he illustrates is let's be proactive. Let's be proactive. Let's not let the technology or any other potential idol control us. Let us prayerfully control it, and use it as a tool. Let's end this way, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate upon these things. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to see just as much of what you've given us in this world, Lord, you have not completely removed us from any potential pitfalls. Lord, your, uh, your son, Jesus, the night before his death, he even prayed, God, I, I pray 
He said for his disciples, not that you will take them out of this world, but that you'll protect them from the evil one. So God, we know that you haven't removed us uh, entirely from pitfalls in our world, but Lord, you have given us all that we need to make sure that tools remain tools and tools never become idols. So God, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here that is struggling with this particular uh, form of idolatry, God, would they go to another brother or sister in Christ that they know and that will pray for them and hold them accountable. And may they come into accountability together and prayer together. And may they help one another grow, putting aside idols and whatever idol it may be, whether it be this particular one or another. And Lord, that they may serve you. And Lord, that they may engage in a deeper level in exactly your mission, not distraction but in your mission to save the world. And in Christ's name we do pray, amen.